When I'm away from her, I start despairing. Oi, 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 oi. You want to know by now what causes that? Yeah, I got pretty good ideas. I'm growing bolder from the hair I'm tearing. Sheesh. You want to know by now what causes that? When she keeps on brushing you aside, oh gosh, you're all at sea. You go contemplating suicide, it's much too much for me. You're not so dumb that you don't know the answer. Loving her is what causes that. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 14th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us, we have a very special guest joining us from Washington, D.C. Ken Ludwig is with us. Broadway fans, of course, know Ken because, uh, well, let's talk about his Broadway shows first. Lend Me a Tenor, Crazy For You, Moon Over Buffalo, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, 20th Century, that, uh, that new adaptation. And um, I'm going to say that Broadway Radio, if you're a Broadway Radio listener, the Venn diagram of, uh, of uh, Ken Ludwig plays in Broadway Radio is totally 100% overlapping because I just heard, I just heard that uh, Sam French, who publishes uh, Ken's plays, said that he had over 3,500 productions of his plays in the United States in the last five years. 3,500. Ken, how do you write so much? <laughs> but they're not separate plays. <laughs> oh, they're not individual plays. Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, so, welcome and uh, thanks for joining us on Sunday morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, how uh let's get a little bit of your bio in. Where are you from and how did you get to where you are right now? Sure. I am. Uh, I was born and raised in Little York, Pennsylvania, in the Amish country of Pennsylvania, um, uh, and uh, real apple country. Uh, and uh, went to high school there. And from an early age, wanted to be in the theater. And I think partly because being in Wash, uh, being in uh, York, we had a, a wonderful community theater, but no other, no professional theaters whatsoever. And my parents would take me once a year to New York to see their parents, to see my grandparents. And, and, and we'd go to a Broadway show once a year and my eyes just opened up and gleamed and I was excited. And I decided from very early on, I just wanted to be in the theater more than anything else in my life. Uh, and, uh, what was the first show you saw? Do you recall? <laughs> uh, first show I saw, I, I think the first uh, show I saw might've been, um, this is something I should have at the tips of my fingers, shouldn't I? A funny thing happened in the way to the forum. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good Excellent. start. Wow. Good start, huh? Yeah. Did you Comedy understand thing. it? Uh, 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 yes, I, I must have because my mother was so embarrassed that she took us, yeah. me and my brother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is your brother older or younger? He's older. Oh, at least that. So, uh, well, was Zero Mustel still in it? or uh... He was. 
Yeah. Oh, good, good. Oh, you started great. early on. Yeah, that's yeah. terrific. Uh, yes, indeed. So, uh, and that's interesting because it is a farce, and here you are. You're certainly no stranger to farce. Yeah, that may have been the, you know what inspired me. You know, I love I love comedies from early on. That was my favorite favorite thing. Uh, other heroes in comedy might include the Marx Brothers or people like that. Um, I, I'm not a huge Marx Brothers fan. Okay. I love Groucho. I, uh-huh. I, I'm not, um, you know, in this, in a sense, slapstick is not my cup of tea. And actually I, I usually don't like the word farce and it's not that I, my plays and I'm not grateful. The fact that people say, Oh my gosh, that's, he writes a lot of farces. I, I, I like to call them muscular comedies because <laughs> farce can have a negative connotation. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. I just silly there's nothing to it there's nothing uh uh and and what i like to think of myself trying to do certainly for the past years is to carry on the banner of that great strain of comedy that starts you know back with the you know the great much great shakespeare comedies of much ado and as you like it midsummer night stream and then goes through uh up through uh she stoops to conquer um uh i think the greatest comedy after shakespeare personally and then you know the rivals and then you get into the uh, 19th century with uh Buchico and london assurance and then up up through uh sir arthur wing panero and mm-hmm. and Wild and and there's that great what I, sort of the classical strain of comedy that are really all out comedies, Noel Coward and Coffin and Hart that are all out comedies, but and they have physical action. There's a lot of physical action. There's mistaken identity. All you know often there's the major tropes of comedy. Uh, uh, a father or mother usually a father saying to a daughter, "You may not marry that boy," mm-hmm. trying to get in the way of the sexual urge of the younger generation. <laughs> certain certain basic comic premises that have existed all, all the way back to Plautus, but maybe most of them invented by Shakespeare. That 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 that's the uh, tradition I think about all the time. Okay, but this um, you mentioned Noel Coward, and so I'm going to jump to something that occurred to me while I was watching Moon Over Broadway the other night. And um, you know, okay, Cyrano de Bergerac definitely in the public domain, no question about that. Mm-hmm. Did you have to get permission to use anything from Private Lives, or how did it work? I, I sure did. Uh huh. <laughs> and they and they they charged a pretty penny. <laughs> really, to the point of which did you ever think of using another play? Well, yes, to the point of which I literally wrote two other drafts. The producers and I got together. They were expensive and, you know, they really uh, um, uh, set a high bar of just financially. And and so I actually did a version with a Lonsdale play and another version. Uh, I did two other. Oh, and another version with maybe it was She Stoops to Conquer or something that was clearly in the uh-huh. public domain. Yeah. But they just weren't as good. They just didn't work as well for the purpose mm-hmm. of the play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I rewatched uh, two Broadway documentaries this week, Moon Over Broadway, and also the uh, documentary on the recording sessions of the Leonard Bernstein recording of West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, one of the most famous uh, theater documentaries is the documentary of the original cast recording sessions of Company. And it occurred to me watching all of them, I, I was like, are, are these filmmakers happy in retrospect when uh, it, it turns out that there are difficulties <laughs> during the, you know, during the projects, you know, rather than everything going completely smoothly. And I was wondering, uh, 
I mean, Ken, you, you can speak to you. You can speak to. Uh, did you have any trepidation about maybe what was shown in that? And also, uh, I, I mean, I was thinking of it in, actually mostly in terms of the Bernstein West Side Story documentary because uh, in that case, I think uh, Jose Carreras, for example, really doesn't come across well. And I was wondering, do people sign releases? Uh, I, I suppose you must sign releases, and, and then uh, do, do they have any say on the content, or is there any? Does that ever become an issue when the when the when the difficult moments are shown, like the Elaine Stritch moment in Company or whatever? Yeah, I, I, I suppose we did probably sign them. I, I, I was not in favor of doing it, but you know, got a lot of pressure to do it. And the producers saying, "Look, this is really good publicity. These are very famous filmmakers. It'll be even-handed, uh, you know, uh, and it'll give a unique insight. It's worth doing. It's a real document to the piece." And and uh, then I found that you know, sort of, of course, when I watched it, I, I went, oh, "Wait a second, you know, they didn't really represent what the process was at all. The process was so joyous all the time." Time. Huh. It's such a good time. So I remember they, I haven't seen it since they first released it. The other thing I recall about the Pennebakers is when they came down to visit, they showed me the entire tape of their uh, documentary. And afterwards, they looked at me eagerly as if to say, Well, you know, did you, did you like it? Isn't it terrific? And I, I, you know, I turned to them and said, Gee, it's, so misrepresents the process and misrepresents what happened in the end. It, as I said earlier, it, it was a joyous process. We had a terrific time and the show has gone on to such success. When they came down to show it to me, it was maybe six months after the show had opened uh, because of course um, uh, they, they uh, had to cut it and they had to finish the documentary. So by this time the play had gone on and had hundreds of productions all over the place. And, and then the since had thousands of productions. And I said, you know, that th this makes it look like the show was unsuccessful. And they said, uh, what, 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 gee, we know it's gone on to so much success. Let us, let us think about what we can do about that. And so what they did, if you watch the, the documentary at the end, they then did a crawl naming uh, dozens of the places where the show had been put on since that time. And that's how they sort of felt they, you know, fixed the documentary. I do think that it, it still doesn't represent the process, but it was nice of them to, to do that. Yeah. had a number of replacements on Broadway as well. Yeah, sure did. It went from uh, Carol Burnett to uh, Lynn Redgrave. And then uh, in London, it was um, Joan Collins and uh, Frank Langella. And on Broadway, Robert Goulet took over uh, for Phil at one point. So, yeah, and it's gone on and had uh, of the shows I've written, uh, I'd say the most popular in terms of sheer number of of, of productions over the years have been lend me a tenor uh, and moon over Buffalo and uh, now Baskerville and some others. So um, it, it, it was nice of them to do that. Of course, you, you know, I'm not saying this is true of all documentary filmmakers, but in this cases, uh, these cases, you know, it's more of a story if you can show some drama and show backstage mm -hmm. unhappiness. I mean, were there moments that, you know, did we do a lot of rewrites in the show? Absolutely. Were there moments that uh, a Carol or a Phil would get, oh, my God, would you guys leave me alone already? I can't. Of course. But there are, have, that was true in every show I've ever done. It was true and crazy for you. And and. Uh, 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 tenor and and um, uh, uh, every show I've ever done has ha always has 
you know, you, you, you be, because you're passionate about what you do, you know, you're, 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 you get angry, you get, you know, you make up your, your, um, uh, if there, if there wasn't some passion, if if it wasn't passionate, it wouldn't be theater. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I, 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 so friends of mine afterwards, I remember one in particular, a dear friend who was, um, uh, I guess he was a casting director. He came up to me later and said, Ken, why did you do that thing? Are you crazy? We all felt so badly. You shouldn't have done it. And, and, you know, it was done by that time. And what could I do? Uh, but, um, uh, 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 we, you know, you make your best guesses and you go with them. Yeah. I mean, the, the backstage craziness on crazy for you was unbelievable because ultimately we had to, I had to rewrite the entire second act in about a week. Uh, we did the, uh, uh, after I finished writing it and then we got to, sh- we were in rehearsal in New York city and, and, uh, Mike Ockren and I became such close friends and Stro, the three of us and Paul Gemignani was really the four, four of us were the, were, the, were uh, running the show. And, and, uh, we, we did a, um, at the end of pretty much the end of the six week rehearsal period in New York, we did a reading for everyone involved. It's this huge room. And, and, and there must've been 150 people in the room all the way around the edges. And the cat, the full cast did this, um, uh, uh, reading the show. Uh, uh, and the, everything we did the first act and everything landed and their laughs were great. And it was terrific. So Mike and I, I'll never forget Mike and I at, at the intermission were, uh, were rubbing our hands with glee. And we said to us, and we actually said these fateful words. Well, if they liked the first half, they're sure <laughs> going to love the second half. <laughs> just you wait. <laughs> and the second half just fell on its face. It uh. just didn't work. And then the question became, what do we do? What do we do? So we all met uh, together in one of our uh, hotel rooms and uh, of the four of us got together and said, all right, what do we do? Do we rewrite it now for the, we did our uh, pre-Broadway opening, the national theater down here in Washington, uh, pre-Broadway tryout. And, and uh, uh, do, do we, do we go into um, that pre-Broadway tryout with this, script knowing that the second act doesn't work and have our time to le- you know rewrite the second act carefully or can do you go away bottle yourself up and go write a whole new second act uh and uh then we'll open in Washington with that because that gives us yet another bite at the apple if that doesn't work and that was the big question and we decided on the latter so I, I quickly rewrote the whole second act uh, and, uh, uh, you know, there's, it, it was a tense, exciting uh, a, a time. And yet, I would think that <laughs> Frank Rich's review was one of the most enthusiastic reviews he ever wrote in his 13 years at the New York Times. Uh, did you ever think it was going to be that great a review? No, no. I remember the opening night party and nobody could get a copy of the review. And a dear friend of mine uh, and I, uh, he's uh, not in the business. We looked around, you know, and finally we found that somebody had one in their pocket. It was in the coat room. That was a New York Times because what was going to happen was uh, Roger Horchow was going to read out the review by, I don't know, midnight or something. But we all got the smell that it was already out and we didn't know what it said. (laughs) My friend and I managed to get one and get it run into the men's room and read the review. 
<laughs> well, actually, that's an interesting moment in, in Moon Over Broadway because so much has changed even since that yeah, movie was made. Yeah. You see um, uh, one of the, I guess, one of the press agents heading to the the old New York Times building yeah, on 43rd yeah, yeah. Street yeah. to pick up the, the paper. I mean, first, first of all, there's hardly any hard copies anymore. The Times yeah. isn't in the same building. building right? yeah. Not, nothing is the same. <laughs> Yeah, Since including the influence, there. including the influence. Right. Uh, you right. Know, so, uh, so right. that's uh, that's true too. Um, so, uh, Roger Herchow. Now, here's a producer who wasn't a producer, and um, he's he's a real rookie coming into the theater. I mean, Lord knows he has the successful business with the catalog and all that. Um, did he adapt very quickly? Was he a good producer uh, in understanding the process? He was. He was a very good producer because he was such an innately good fellow. And and uh, I'll, I'll never forget talking to him in later years. Say, we would laugh about it, and he'd say, you know, he says, you know, William Ivy Long gave me this budget, and that budget was like, you know, I don't know what it was. I can't remember exact numbers. He'd say $250,000 for the costumes, and we talked about it. We knew that was right. He says, he said, and now it's $600,000. Yep. What happened? I don't know where that happened. But he <laughs> <laughs> Same with the set, with Robin Wagner set. So he he did, uh, but he adapted and he knew what was necessary. He got behind it, and he was a hundred percent behind it. I, you know, it was just a it was a lucky thing. I, I had there were two instances in my life where that sort of thing happened. That serendipity early on. I was a young playwright who had, had shows in, uh, you know, uh, um, off 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 Broadway and and church basements and stuff and. And uh, a, a comedy I wrote, which was Lend Me a Tenor, at the time it was titled Opera Buffa, got in the hands of an English playwright who took it to England, called me, said, I want to do this uh, in England. I love this play, and I have a producer friend I want to show it to. And I said, uh, uh, gee, I don't know. You know, I acted, I was a young guy, and I, was, I acted like jackass. I said, I, I don't know. You know, I have a producer. <laughs> what look important. <laughs> I, I, I have producer friends, too, you know. <laughs> I know a lot of producers who are interested in the show. Uh, who's your friend? And he said, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> and, and Andrew calls me three days, uh, three, uh, four days later. And, uh, and they put it on that. He put, Andrew puts it on in the West end and it's a huge hit. And then he, Andrew produces it on Broadway. And after that, and, and, and on it went. And then right after that, I got this call from this guy named Horchow who I'd never heard of. And he says, you don't know me, uh, 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 but he says, uh, I, I, I love your play. You, you've got the only real comedy on Broadway right now. I need a comedy. I need a, a book of a musical. I want you to write this musical for me. I have the rights to all these uh, Gershwin uh, uh, tunes. And uh, I said, J just the way I did with the jackass with, uh, 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 with the director, um, I, I said, uh, well, gee, I, know I don't write. Uh, but I was serious this time. I said, I don't know how to write musicals. I write plays. <clears throat> so I think you've got the wrong guy. You ought to go ask one of my friends, uh, Wendy Wasserstein or, uh, or uh, people who've written musicals. Uh, um, uh, and I gave a couple names and telephone numbers and we got off. And uh, Roger, about a week goes by and Roger calls me again and says, can I think you're making a mistake? Okay. <laughs> that was my Texas accent. Yes. <laughs> he, he was from Ohio, though. <laughs> Go on. Just wanted, to, just wanted to sound folksy. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
you're making a mistake. I think you should do this. I, I don't think so. Roger, I just don't know how to do it. I, and I'm in the middle of writing another play. Go elsewhere. So a week later, he calls again. He says, I'm flying to Washington. I'm taking you out to lunch at the Watergate Hotel. If you'll have lunch with me, a little edgy. <laughs> so he did, and, I, and he convinced me, and I'm ob- obviously glad I did it. Well, the irony about all this is the fact that you had to be convinced, um, and uh, and yet it's not your only experience with musicals, needless to say. However, there was a British musical of Lend Me a Tenor, and um, you weren't involved with that per se, were you? No, no. Early, early on, I'd given the rights for these guys to do this, and, you know, I just didn't want to write. Having gone through it and, and known it's hard to write musicals, I just I said, fine, you guys do the book lyrics, everything, just do it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Did you like it? Did. It, it didn't work 100%. It, it had some good things in it. It all, almost made it. It had some wonderful moments in it. Uh, but uh, in the end, it, it didn't kind of uh, uh, mm-hmm. hit a home run. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of Crazy for You, one of the great discoveries, of course, was hearing What Causes That, a Gershwin song that wasn't well known at that point in time. And it certainly is delightful and wonderful. Um, so did you have to listen to every Gershwin song and say, wow, I think I could use that? Or were you given a certain number of songs and saying, choose from this uh, list? Well, well, what it was, first of all, it started out, it was only the songs that the two Gershwin brothers wrote together. And as you know, George wrote a lot of songs uh, with other lyricists and, and Ira wrote lyrics for other um, uh, composers. So not, it didn't include those, just the two of them. And that, but that amounted to about 400 songs. Wow. Uh, so how do I find out what to do? So I went out in those days, it was, uh, you went to, uh, oh, what was the name of that big store? Uh, Shermer. Uh, no, where you get to see, you bought uh, uh, CDs. Um, Tower. Tower Records, oh, HMV. Colony. Tower. Tower, yeah. Tower Records. Okay. Because I live in D.C. Okay. Ah. Uh, it is, uh, I went to Tower and I, other places, and I, and I found as many CDs of, of Gershwin songs as I could. And so I listened and listened and listened. I mean, I, I had a sack of, I'll bet, 25 CDs. Uh, I went everywhere to look for them. And, but, so I, I, you know, what I did was, you know, songs have to, tell the story of the musical you can't just drop in a song say okay love song time and drop in a love song you can if it doesn't make a very good musical the 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 song has to tell the story of the musical and partly as i wrote the story if i found a song i thought was right i would change the the plot to fit the song uh so um uh when i got to that point what causes that specifically uh uh i was up a tree because I knew I needed a comic song at that point, And I didn't have a good comic song for that point. I just was tearing my hair out. I listened <laughs> to everything. There were a lot of his, the early songs that were very, you know, sort of Yiddish based that were sort of me, pretended to be comic, but they hadn't, w- didn't fit into the plot. <laughs> uh, and so I called Michael Feinstein. I knew Michael Feinstein. Uh, Michael, of course, uh, was uh, Ira Gershwin's secretary for so many years, or <laughs> and Ira knew the the uh, the uh, canon so tremendously well, and it was Ira who suggested what causes that, and I think it was not recorded. I don't 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 don't. Yeah, I didn't know it was recorded. Yeah, 
I think it was not. And he sent me the, uh, or I somehow tracked down the, the, uh, sheet music. I was a, I was a music theory and composition major in college and on, and I studied with Leonard Bernstein. Hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, so I you certainly can read music and, and, and I realized, dude, that's a pretty good song. So I called Mike up and, uh, Mike Ockrent and, and, uh, sang to him over the telephone and, and, uh, and said, what do you think of this? I think this will work. And we made it into the mirror, into the sort of the mirror song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Lend Me a Tenor in London as well as Broadway. And of course, the, the look of it was completely different in both cities. And I'm wondering if you had a preference. Well, I loved both productions. You know, uh, we had, you know, by the time we got to New York, we had the advantage. There were different directors. Mm-hmm. So they have different, you know, views of what they're going to do. Uh, uh, all, all, in both cities, there were masterful people who were on sets and 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 uh, uh, d- costumes and and um, makeup and wigs and 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 they were you know great theater artists in both cases. Uh, the the we and we had the 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 advantage of hindsight because we knew. Uh, I knew what I thought maybe from London didn't land as well as I wanted it to, maybe because of a set piece, a piece of the set, literally a, a scenery mm-hmm. issue. Uh, so I could tweak it that way. So um, I, I love them both. They are all my sons. I get it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> um, so, uh, in fact, given the fact that you had a new director, um, were you wary of that uh, when, when Jerry Zach started out? Uh, did you say, oh, wow, this is really turning out to be very different? Um, or were you convinced from the beginning, mm, this is good? No, I knew Jerry and I knew that he was a master at this kind of uh, uh, comedy. And so it was a great union from the beginning. We thought alike. We think about the same things. We have the same lexicon completely. So there wasn't any... I don't remember at the time anything uh, thinking about comparisons with the past. It was simply that um, a, a producer, Marty Starger, was the producer. Uh, I mean, a- Andrew Lloyd Webber was the producer, but he took he did it. Andrew produced it by himself in London, and uh, he he brought on Marty Starger when he did it in New York. So that the uh, the two of them and and Marty knew Jerry or at least wanted Jerry to do it in New York. And then we waited till Jerry's opening. So it took us a while to open in New York. And then when he did, you know, Jerry is a, such a great pro. He just rolls up his sleeves and he's in charge and knows what he wants. And, and, uh, but David Gilmore who did it in London it is a terrific pr- uh, director and, a and he couldn't have a nicer human being in the world. And, and, uh, uh, look, he, he helped invent the piece. All right. Now, when I saw it in London, I had to go to a meeting and the moment it ended, I left. So I don't know if that recap, that's a speedy recap that happened at the end of the uh, Jerry Zach's production actually originated in London. Did it or was that Jerry Zach's idea? It originated in London. It did. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I missed it. OK. Uh, and, and it originated this way. Uh, I said to David about two or three weeks into rehearsal you know, I love curtain calls. You know, we were talking about, we we're getting even to the stage of thinking of what the curtain call might look like. And I, and I said, well, I just love curtain calls. There's so much fun. It shows how shallow I am. But you know, <laughs> I just, I just, you know it's a wonderful moment. And every, I look forward to it in every piece. And uh, what are you going to do? You know, maybe bring, you know, what order you bring them on? Maybe they come from the back or do they dance on or something like that? And he said, well, why don't you write an interesting curtain call? Ah. Uh. 
So I thought, huh, well, what do I do? So I, I re I wrote this, it, it wrote it out, you know, sort of beat by beat. And then of course we, and the idea was it went from one major uh, uh, set in a sense, tableau to the next, and they ran from one to the next. And then it was, it was a, it's an interesting piece of music. Uh, it was the, the piece of music um, it is, was um, written for a Labiche comedy. It was written back in the 1920s. Oh, uh, and that was, I wish I could say how intelligent I was and, and my great musical background uh, uh, led me to it. But it was one of the people who was in the room and it was actually one of the members of the stage management group. We were all sitting together. He said, oh, why don't you use this? Have you heard, have you heard this? <laughs> uh, and uh, it was a wonderful piece of music and, and we chose it and uh, on we went. And then I've used that again. I've used that ending again in, uh, I think I used it in, in uh, Moon River Buffalo. I certainly used it in um, Leading Ladies. When I, uh-huh. I directed Leading Ladies uh, myself in the world premiere, both Alley and Cleveland Playhouse. And uh, I, I did the same thing. It's a, it's a wonderful way to end a, a, a big comedy. Now, speaking of Cleveland, uh, isn't that where Lend Me a Tennis takes place? Yes, it is. Mm. So as a result of you ever seen it done in Cleveland, and is there an extra resonance from the audience because it's their hometown? I have not seen it done in Cleveland. All right. There's still time. No, there's still time. But anyway, there's a a PS to that. First of all, it's set in Cleveland because um, I needed a, a, a city in America that would believably support an opera company, but it still sort of has a feel of a small town. And mm-hmm. Cleveland fits us like a club because, you know, in its day, <clears throat> Cleveland was a, a very rich city. You know, it has mm-hmm. the, you know, the great Cleveland Museum, the Cleveland Symphony uh, and Opera Company because it was a rich industrial town that then sort of went downhill yeah. over time. Yeah. It seemed like a perfect choice. So all, all my comedies, were, I think I think all of them, are at least virtually, are set in small towns. I was going to mention that, yeah. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and so, uh, that was the reason I chose Cleveland. When I wrote, I wrote a play that is a, I, the sequel is the wrong word. I wrote a play using the same characters 10 years, or not 10 years, maybe, what is it? Three years later called uh, a comedy of tenors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, it's, it, it's out, it's been out now for what, eight, 10 years. It's been hugely successful in terms of number of productions around the country. And it had its world premiere at the Cleveland playhouse ah. for their hunt. Actually it was for their hundredth anniversary. It was a big gala time. Oh, how and, nice. uh, it was, uh, um, it was a wonderful night and a wonderful run and they're a wonderful theater. All right. Now moon over Broadway, um, shows us that night where the winches weren't winching correctly. And indeed, um, you know, the performance had to stop and Carol Burnett had to come out and essentially do the Carol Burnett show. Right. Um, what percentage of you enjoyed that moment watching her do that? Oh, a hundred percent. Oh well, yeah. I, yeah. Oh my God. We, we, uh, uh, I remember very much the, the director and I going, Oh my God, what are we going to do? So we ran together up to Carol's room, uh, dressing room and said, Carol, help, help, help. We don't know what to do. And she, hey, could you come out and talk to the audience? We just thought she'd come out and say a few words. And, uh, oh, I remember her calling into the audience. I think Bernadette Peters was there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, who else? Uh, oh, uh, that she one. thought Julie Andrews was Julie, there, but yeah, she wasn't. Julie had, a, Julie had a show that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise engaged. Victorian time. Yeah. Who was there? The the, the uh, uh, oh that the Italian actor who's heavy set. Uh, Don DeLuise. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there. Yeah, it was a joyous night. Yeah, that was tons of fun. We'd like to thank BetterHelp for continuing to sponsor Broadway Radio. We've been talking for a few weeks about BetterHelp and the benefits of talking with one of their professional counselors. I've spoken with many listeners throughout 2020, and I know that the lack of being able to go to live theater has impacted all of us. From friends who work in the industry, not being able to pay their rent and put food on the table, all the way through fans who dearly miss the curtain rising at 8.07 p.m., as it gave them a respite from the everyday travails of life. The global theater community is just that, a community that we have all come to depend upon one another. BetterHelp can be a part of your community and help you make it through the hard times. Now, I'm not saying that your licensed therapist is going to sing before the parade passes by, but they will help you hold your head up high. BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist, but also recognizes that you may need to make a change, so they make it easy and free to change counselors. You can talk with your counselor in many ways, by phone, by video, by messages using the BetterHelp app, whatever suits your needs in a convenient, safe, and private online environment. Come on, give your best friend a break. They are not professional counselors, but BetterHelp is, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours without having to ever sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is available worldwide and is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. We know that 2020 has been hard financially, and financial aid is available. There's a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in many areas. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, family conflicts, anxiety, LGBT matters, relationships, grief, sleeping, self-esteem, trauma, everything. Anything that you share is confidential. One thing to note is that BetterHelp is not a crisis hotline. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener to This Week on Broadway, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash broadwayradio. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash broadwayradio. We'd like to thank BetterHelp for continuing to sponsor Broadway Radio. Uh, I, I had a few questions. Uh, one is a real quick one. You said that uh, Lend Me a Tenor had a different name first. Did you come up with Lend Me a Tenor, or was uh, did did no. somebody come to you and say this is the new name of the show? Uh, I, I call it, I had the name Opera Buffa. I went to <laughs> right after um, uh, um, a- Andrew um, called me when the director um, called me and said, "Hey, I have this producer friend who's and it's Andrew Lloyd Webber." It was like a week later. Andrew calls me in my little apartment in Washington, says, "I want to put your show on in the West End. Can you be in London in a couple of weeks and meet me?" So sure enough, I went to London and met him. He had a, his car picked me up at the airport, and we went to the um, American bar at the Savoy, met Andrew there. And at the time with him was a very good friend of him who was the lyricist on, uh, Phantom and on, uh, Don Black, Don Don Black, Charles. No, who's he? No, Charles Uh, Hart. No, before that, who did some of his earlier things, Tim Rice, Tim Rice. No. Okay. <laughs> Alan Aikman. <laughs> Puccini. 
Uh, no. <laughs> uh, all right. Be that right. submit. Right. Go on. All right. all right. I wish I could. I'm sorry about this. I didn't. No, no, no. Well for the, no, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so we were sitting around and Andrew says to me, you know, I don't want the word opera in the title. People don't go to shows that have the word opera in them. <laughs> Little did I know the fan of the opera. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. It was happening at the time. About to happen. Um, but they said, so, and it was this other fellow, because lend me a, t- said, hey, le- what about lend me a tenor? And Andrew loved it, and I loved it. Because, you know, of course, lend me a tenor in, in England is a pun, because it's mm-hmm. lending a 10-pound note. It's sort of sure. like Cockney say, lend me a tenor. Mm-hmm. So, so between, so if you, if you really think about it, between the, uh, between uh, the the uh, curtain call and the title and everything, I didn't really write "Lend Me a Tenor." <laughs> <laughs> it's a good gig if you can get it. <laughs> right, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Thirty-five hundred productions in the last five years. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I, again, we 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 sort of went off on a tangent, which is totally fine, and that's what we do here. But um, you're at Haverford College. And in and right outside of uh, the Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, a, a young pretty lady comes into audition for you. Tell us about that. Yes, she did, and she went to Bryn Mawr, and she uh, and then I married her. <laughs> uh, did she get the part? She did get the part. Of course she did. I'm not stupid. <laughs> it's amazing how many stories they don't get the part, and it still happens anyway. So, uh, so most interesting. How did you end up from uh, from Haverford College uh, to making a life in the D.C. area? It sounds like I, I don't know how long have you been in the D.C. area. Well, the the, the stories uh, uh, has a couple twists and turns in it. So I, I finished college, and my parents said to me. Look, you got to go to graduate school, of course. How are you going to earn a living? I said, I want to be in the theater. I'm going to write plays. And they said, Okay, what are you going to? How are you going to make a living? What are you going to do? What what graduate school are you going to go to? And and so uh, I, I fought, but not too hard. And I did end up applying, and I applied to Harvard Law School, and I got in. So I went to Harvard Law School. Um, I think, uh, I, I I remember writing honestly in in the um, uh, essay portion. And I was very honest about it. I, I just said, look, you know, I don't want to practice law. I don't really want to go to Harvard Law School. My parents made, I want to be in the theater, but uh, I certainly want to come out and not going to practice law, uh, which has no interest to in me whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure they got together in that meeting, you know, that, you know, when they all sit around and say, we're going to show him, you know, you know, uh, uh, We'll fix him good. So they let me in. And and so, uh, so I went and I went there. And then uh, after the first year there, I got a, a scholarship to study in England for two years, studied in England, then came back, finished up at Harvard Law School. Um, now, I was at Cambridge uh, in England. Uh, uh, and um, and then I had no money. I mean, I literally just had no money. Uh, and and I so I needed to do something. And what I did was I practiced law here in Washington, D.C. to, to you know, put food on the table. And, and I've said at times that that was my day job and, and people chuckle as if, you know, <laughs> usually it's, you know, you're waiting tables. But, you know, it's not it's not even a joke. You know, in a way, that's what my skill was. That's how I was able to make a living. Uh, I, I got myself into a routine, a very, really strict routine where I, I, um, got up every morning, uh, uh, religiously at four o'clock in the morning. 
I'd shower and put on my jeans. And I'd, I wrote from 4.30 to 8.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then I'd uh, write plays. And then I'd, and then I'd go to um, uh, the, the firm, I'd, uh, which I could walk to because my apartment was downtown. Uh, and there was a big uh, international law firm called Steptoe & Johnson. Um, uh they, they had uh, they were in lots of cities around the country and and I and I and I practiced public international law representing different countries and and uh, uh, it, it was a uh, you know it's it's a it's a good life it's a great life uh, it's just wasn't the life I wanted to lead mm-hmm. so while I was um, practicing law I was writing these plays and then they got done here and there and everywhere in 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 Washington and in, in church basements the first two of them and friends from the firm would come see them and they were supportive and so then I went part-time at the firm after I did uh, uh tenor I guess and or no I guess I went part-time after tenor and crazy for you because I felt, the question was whether I could support myself mm-hmm. uh, it was just a it was just a financial issue of supporting myself. Um, so it was a torture, rather tortuous journey. Okay. Uh, the people at the firm, uh, when you're saying, you know, I'm thinking of leaving, you know, I'm a playwright now. Uh, did many of them say, great, good for you, go ahead. Or did they say, are you crazy? Are you, look at the money you're turning down. They, they were all 90% supportive because they love coming to the shows. They realized <laughs> a lot of them wanted to be writers. So many sure. writers. I'm not surprised so, that either. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was actually very, very supportive. The, the one man I worked for in the area of international law, Monroe Lee, who had been legal advisor to the state department under Kissinger. And that's about as high as you can go in the legal profession in international law. When I, and a very, a wonderful, you know, gentleman, uh, you know, uh, 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 quiet and and thoughtful guy when i when i walked in to tell him i'm leaving the firm to go into show business <laughs> he thought i was great he just thought he had sort of known gee this kid everybody else in the firm knew but he had didn't know this kid what do you do you write little stories and you're leaving um, the law firm? Mm-hmm. uh so he he was shocked but then over the years you know um uh, as I, I then wrote, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, after the ones we've talked about with leading ladies and games of foot and and uh, working in London and this and that, everybody got on the bandwagon and they'd travel all over and they'd come see the shows. And to this day, they're friends of mine and uh, they, they became my cheering section. It was very touching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not surprised to hear that. So um, now you're in the D.C. area. And uh, there's quite a great uh, community of theater in the D.C. area. I mean, all the way from really wonderful uh, Kennedy Center productions to the Ford's Theater to Arena Arena. to, uh, you know, you have such great stuff there. And you've uh, you've done one of your uh, uh, plays there, a world premiere that was based upon your parents. So tell us about that. Sure. Um, I, I... During the time, uh, uh, you know, for the past 15, 20 years, I basically wrote, a pl- I'd say easily, a play a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, 
you know, people often ask me about that when I was in England, the National Theatre of England. Well, that's on the South Bank. That's the National Theatre of England and true in Europe. And the National Theatre of the United States is this amazing um, uh, network we have of regional theatres in the United States for 500 theatres. So more and more, as I as I wrote and I was living here in D.C., I, I, I started opening shows in the regional theaters, and they became my home. They became the national theater for me. So uh, the, the ones have been, over the years, my real home bases that I've done, uh, um, um, one world premiere after another, have been the McCarter uh, in mm. Princeton. I did sure. four world premieres there. Uh, including uh, the, that comedy of tenors was Cleveland and McCarter um, uh, co-production. Uh, the Cleveland Playhouse, which is amazing. So McCarter, Cleveland, uh, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, um, the Old Globe in San Diego, uh, uh, Barry Edelstein. I've done three for him. He's called me up and said, hey, would you write a play for our summer season? And and so I, I write for them a lot. Uh, uh, the um, And one of those uh, in, I'm sure I'm leaving, a, uh, the Alley, I worked in the alley oh, yeah. a lot. Uh, I think I had three or four world premieres at the alley. And then I started doing that around England and, and the Bristol Old Vic, the Old Vic in London, the Haymarket Theater in London. So I'd start opening plays other in other places, so in the regional theaters of England as well. Um, and uh, uh, one of these... Well, uh, and then a number here in Washington, because I was close, Signature Theater, uh, Fox and the Fairway had its world premiere at the Signature Theater. Uh, so did so did uh, the one um, uh, that I had on Broadway with Alec Baldwin. Um, 20th Century. Uh, 20th, 20th Century uh, had its world premiere here in D.C. at the Signature in their little garage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and the other, and so I, I've worked in virtually all the theaters here in DC because it is a, a a terrific theater town. Mm-hmm. It has, ter- I mean, wonderful theaters and actors mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Uh, uh, craftspeople and designers. Uh, and uh, and then uh, one of them was, of course, Arena Stage. Early on, they did one of my plays called Shakespeare in Hollywood. I'll never forget. I've had tons of shows at the Kennedy Center over the years. Uh, maybe I think as many as fourteen in all, all their stages. And once they were doing a reading, uh, they had a, a, a series, they did readings uh, of, uh, uh, of um, what's it called? They do it every September, a whole bunch of theater things go on at the Kennedy Center. And I just written a play called Shakespeare in Hollywood and they put it on there and I had a terrific cast with Robert Prosky, Bob Prosky mm. was in it and, uh, and uh, a, a lot of wonderful actors. And, at the end of it, there was a question and answer period. And um, Holly Twyford, who's a terrific actor, ah, yes. mostly here in D.C., but she can mm-hmm. go anywhere in the world. She's just, you know, world mm. class. She was in it. And Holly, in the, in the question and answer thing, uh, Holly says, you know, I want to say some, some question. And she said, you know, Ken drives, Ken drives me crazy. We do these things of his down here. We try them out, but we're never, they, they, they don't go. When, when he takes them to New York, we're not in them. 
and and, uh, and and Bob Prosky says, uh, "Yeah, and why don't the why don't you do stuff at the arena stage?" Because you know Bob had made his uh, sure he sure life did. At the arena yeah. Stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so so he called. I think it was Molly's first year, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he called up Molly and said, "You got to do uh, do this at arena." So so that's when Molly did um, uh, Shakespeare in Hollywood at arena stage with Bob Prosky and. And uh, so that was one. And then the next thing I did at Arena Stage was, um, I think there was one other one, a world premiere. And then Baskerville, a play I wrote uh, that's based on The Hound of the Baskervilles, but is uh, done with five actors. Uh, uh, It was a world premiere, a a co-world premiere at at, um, Arena and McCarter. And uh, it was wildly successful for them and has since become the, the show uh, the, the, among those 35, actually I think it's 4,000 uh, productions in the past five years uh, is um, uh, Baskerville is, is, is number two to lend me a tenor. Baskerville is just, Done all, and it's it's overtaking. Lend me a tenor is my most mm. popular play. Wow! Uh, uh, so I've written a sequel to it called Moriarty, which is about to be done Cleveland Playhouse, and and I have another one I've, I've written since then. Um, so Baskerville was done there. So when I I finished this play about my parents, uh, I wrote a play about my parents that's based on a series of letters they wrote during World War II. We don't we, we don't have the letters. Um, uh, themselves, but I knew through family lore that they had been written. My, my parents met during World War II by letter. By letter? Their, their, their uh, parents knew each other. Their fathers were both tailors from the old country. Huh. And uh, uh, they knew each other. And, you know, one said to the other at some point, you know, your son ought to meet my daughter and your daughter ought to meet my son. And it was World War II was, was, uh, had already started. And this was around 41. And um, uh, uh, so they got each other's uh, addresses, mail addresses. So my father wrote a letter to my mother that said, in essence, how do you do? <laughs> I'm Captain uh, Jacob S. Ludwig, and, and uh, my father and your father are friends and said that perhaps we should meet in a social way. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And she wrote back. Now, she, meanwhile, so he he was a doctor in the Army stationed in Medford, Oregon. The reason I had to write was he was in Medford, Oregon, and she was in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, He was a uh, he had just he had put himself through medical school, very poor family, father, Taylor in little Coatesville, Pennsylvania, steel town. He had worked in the steel mills and put himself through college and then med school. Uh, and he had just graduated med school when he was drafted into the army and stationed in Medford uh, to take care of the incoming wounded from the Pacific uh, theater. Uh, uh, she meanwhile was a kid who was very beautiful. She was a model, uh, a Chanel model uh, from a poor family in Brooklyn who wanted didn't want to be a model. She wanted to be in show business. So she went to New York City and uh, joined one of those stage door canteens, that, or not canteens, mm-hmm. stage, stage door um, boarding houses, like in um, uh, the Kaufman Ferber play. Yeah, stage, stage door. Stage door. Yeah. 
and uh, other hopefuls there made it, became stars later, who she knew at the, the uh, Van Johnson was there, and at the time, you know, nobody mm-hmm. heard of him. And so, so she was there, there and, and that's where she was living when they started this correspondence. So I thought it would make a good play to, to tell their story through their correspondence as they got to know each other over four years. So not a, not a comedy? It is a comedy. No, it is a comedy, but it's a a comedy drama. It's it's a bit of a departure from what I usually write. Uh, uh, It's um, uh, um, hopefully the the, the audience goes through a lot emotionally in the course of the play. And uh, it played in, we we did the world premiere at um, uh, Arena and it was, uh, really successful. Uh, people really seem to like it. It won the Charles, won the Helen Hayes, Charles MacArthur Award, Best Player Musical of the Year. Wonderful. So it's Shakespeare in Hollywood. Uh, so that was great, and people loved it. And and it's uh, just being released now uh, uh, by Samuel French, or, or uh, of course, Conquering Con- Con- yeah. yeah. And also, uh, there's a, a very serious uh, um, a Broadway production in the works. We're just casting it right now. Oh, how nice. That's good to hear. Is it a two-hander? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and perfect on a Valentine's Day. So. Yeah. <laughs> and perfect so, in the COVID era, too, to have only two yeah. actors on a stage. Um, right. In terms of York, Pennsylvania, I have to ask, since you mentioned the community theater, did you see Plain and Fancy there? Um, was <laughs> That's a musical that deals with the Amish. I don't know if you know it, but uh, I know it used to get done out in that part of the world uh, a number of times. Do you yes. know what I'm talking about at all? I sure do. I sure okay. do. Yeah, if you grow up in York or Lancaster, you know, that's your, you know, that's like Oklahoma to you, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody mm-hmm. knows Plain and Fancy. Yeah, the, the theater's a wonderful one. It was called York Little Theater when I was young, and my mom would be, because she then uh, uh, was, uh, wanted to, still loved the theater, but had moved to York because my dad was a doctor there. Uh, she was in the, played at York Little Theater, and the theater is now called the Belmont Theater. They just changed their name about five, eight years ago, and they're I just um, recorded uh, something to welcome everybody to the 88th anniversary of the theater. They're doing a big celebration this year and stuff. It's a, it's a just, just what a community theater should be. Wow. And of course, uh, let me attend has been done there. Yes, it has. And, and leading ladies and uh, uh, Moon River Buffalo. And so so uh, going to that is in the same place, the same building that you went to as a kid. Yes, it is. Yes, oh, it is. so that must have been quite a thrill, you know, seeing your own play there. It was. It was. It was, to say the least. Yeah. 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 Back to uh, DC. I know I, I've seen uh, some shows at the Shakespeare Theater in recent years, and I know that they have, uh, I think, recently uh, branched out to include not only Shakespeare and other classics, but also plays inspired by. Uh, Shakespeare and the classics and musicals. I, they did Kiss Me Kate a couple of years ago. Uh, have they have they done Lend Me a Tenor? They haven't done Lend Me a Tenor. They did a wonderful production. They did the world premiere of another play I wrote, which was a um, a, a modern, uh, not a modern adaptation, but an adaptation of uh, Farquhar's, George Farquhar's play of 1707, The Bose Stratagem. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really great uh, l- late restoration or maybe restoration was over by then, but written in 1707, uh, uh, a knockabout, wonderful uh, sort of Georgian play uh, that 
is a ton of fun. Uh, and it, it's done in England in the original sometimes, but it's a, it's a pretty wordy long. And Thornton Wilder had the idea at one point in his life hmm. to write this, do an adaptation of an English play in English, but sort of show that it's a really great comedy at heart. And he wrote part of it and never finished it. The Wilder estate came to me out of the blue uh, about, oh, I don't know, at this point, maybe eight, ten years ago and said, you know, uh, he never finished it. And we have these bits and pieces of uh, of the play. Would you would you finish his adaptation? Uh, So I rolled up my sleeves and I ended up having to write. Uh, you know, so he, he had some of the first act, and I ended up, you know, sort of making it all of a piece, and did a second act, and I added soliloquies that felt to me sort of they were like uh, um, uh, uh, Wilder did in uh, uh, The Matchmaker, and uh, and um, it was at the Shakespeare Theater, and Michael Kahn directed it, and it was terrific. It was just a wonderful night. Now it's done all over the place, and. So I, I have worked there. So uh, Ken, let's wrap it up for t- for the morning. Um, w- one of our listeners suggested that perhaps it was Richard Stilgo. That was the oh, uh, that's who it was. Yeah. Ex- uh, so Tony Janicki got the uh, three pointer from the outside. <laughs> there, <laughs> excellent, uh, unexpected, pulled up and shot there. Good. Uh, and one of our other listeners said that perhaps you were a student of. Uh, their uncle, uh, their math teacher, Philip Lair. Oh, my God. Oh, I love Phil Lair. And Phil and I kept in contact for years and years after I came to D.C. He was the greatest guy. We reach far and wide here. (laughs) In fact, uh, so that was Rob Johnston, and we'll give Rob Johnston four (laughs) points from downtown there for (laughs) that one. (laughs) Well, he had the best uncle in the world. And Aunt Gwen is going to be very excited to hear about that. Great. So, uh, so uh, listeners, if you go over to our show notes at broadwayradio.com, you'll be able to see all the different things that uh, uh, we have uh, for Ken. We have his links back to Concord Theatrical, his website, Twitter, Facebook, all the other stuff, different ways to reach out to Ken. Ken, it's really wonderful to talk with you. And um, when, your, uh, when your show, Dear Jack... Dear Louise comes to Broadway. I'd love to have you back on and talk about that then. I'd love I it. have one more question. Oh, you do? Okay. And that is being born on the Ides of March. Did that ever unnerve you? <laughs> it, it of course meant I was doomed. <laughs> hey, my fair lady opened on that date. How bad can it be? Not attention. All right, Ken, thank you so much, and have a great week- weekend. Great. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me on. I re- really enjoyed it. Loving her is what causes that. Wow, I, I, I didn't realize that uh, Dear Jack and Dear Louise was... Uh, Heading for Broadway. That's that's breaking. That's, maybe news. that's a scoop. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a breaking <laughs> yeah, news here, and and a two hander at that. So you know you yes, could have a uh, perfect for uh, the t- the current times. Sure. Yeah, you could do uh, you know the last five years and Dear Jack, Dear Louise, and Rep. You know, uh, <laughs> to, to double two handers and uh, easy to do. Well, that would be very fitting, uh, given the fact, of course, that Moon Over Buffalo dealt with two shows in rep as well. So uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> All right. So uh, 
elsewhere this week, uh, we heard the sad news that Joe Allen had passed away. And Michael, anything to say about Joe? Well, it really is the end of an era. I mean, we uh, he opened. I guess he opened his place on Restaurant Row in 1965. Except it wasn't called Restaurant Row then because the area was not not what it is Scary. now. Uh, and he was. Uh, I mean, it's amazing how individuals can can have so much effect on uh you know on a on a neighborhood on on a, you know just so, so much great effect on, on so many things by by one decision to open a restaurant there uh and he was really a pioneer as far as that and uh the the, the obits um have been so fascinating just so many stories of of his his restaurants and how the the flop wall started and how it at first people were very embarrassed by it uh to be included there and then very soon people were like can you put up my show poster please <laughs> it became a yeah, it, it became a wonderful uh tribute in a way and uh, he he was just a, just a, a titanic individual in the in the in the theater industry without being an active part of actually producing shows or, or starring in them or, or something that there, there are so many industries that are tangential to the theater but that that really thrive upon it and he, he's a perfect example of that our friend ron fassler um wrote a wonderful tribute to Joe that we, uh, we'll send and we can include it in the show notes. But one of the obits, um, <laughs> I think the, the the funniest thing I read in one of the obits is that uh, at one point, Joe had dated um, both Elaine yeah. Stritch and then later Cheetah Rivera. And somebody said that, um, <laughs> that uh, Cheetah was Joe's reward for dating. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ironically enough, um, w w the first time I was there was December 2nd, 1968. I remember it vividly because Promises Promises had opened the night before. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, my friend Larry Feinberg was going to see it that night. Um, I was still living in Boston. And he said, come on, I want you to come to this restaurant because um, there's something funny about it. And that, of course, was the wall. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about uh, the flops, there was a newspaper ad that I remember seeing um, when uh, back in 1965, I remember very vividly seeing this ad and it was framed and somehow over the years, maybe somebody stole it. Maybe they decided it wasn't a poster, but when Kelly, the notorious <laughs> flop opened on February 6, 1965, a few days before there was an ad in the paper saying, come see Kelly now before we open on Saturday night or else you're going to have to wait a long time to see it. And of course, there was an irony in that because I guess the producers knew that nobody was going to see it after Saturday night, uh, that you would have to wait a long time. And of course, musicals and mufties uh, made that happen many, 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 many moons later. <laughs> but that was the ad that was in the paper that week in, uh, in 1965. And they did have it up there for a while, but I don't know what happened to it. Um, but I, I'd love to know. But that ad really existed and i remember that so vividly so um yeah what's also uh funny is the fact that i noticed he was married to uh, a woman whose name was Dee. Hmm. now isn't Dee Dee allen the name of the character in the prom i think it is i haven't checked but uh, i think it is it's Dee. Dee. isn't it no am i wrong Help us out, listeners here. Uh, anybody in the chat room? I think I noticed that when I when I watched it, I, I made note of of it, and I think you're right. Uh huh. 
Yeah, I haven't checked it, but I mean that that struck me, uh, and uh, and I would love to know how um, Ms. Allen um, enjoys that. I imagine you know Cheryl, so, uh, Cheryl Hodges Selden says it is Dee Dee Allen. Uh huh. Good. God love you, Cheryl. I think it's spelled differently, but yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Nevertheless, I mean, I wonder if that was purposeful. If they knew that, if they didn't know that, I mean, who knows? But anyway, Bob Martin, Chad, Chad Beglin. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. certainly well, yeah. Uh, not strangers to Joe. No, no, I'm sure they're not. I'm sure they're not. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, 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 tangentially, um, we all, all three of us saw Moon over Buffalo again this week to prepare for our discussion with Ken. A Moon over uh, Broadway, actually. A Moon over Broadway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do uh, that all the time. Yeah, uh, and uh, Rocco Landsman talks about. Uh, the power of the New York Times, um, right? Uh, the power of the New York Times Review. Uh, so interesting how much that that has changed, uh, and the and the way in which uh, uh, opening night when uh, Adrian was it Adrian Brian, yes. Brown, yeah, it was, Brian yeah. Brown and, and Bob Fennell were yeah, God rest the, his soul. Yeah, 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 talking to everybody, the uh, critics as they were coming in the front door. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Uh, and it, Vincent Canby is the Vincent person Canby. who reviewed it yeah. for the Times. For the Times, yeah. And nicely. <laughs> Such a, I mean, I, I understand what you were saying about the uh, the producers of the movie trying to create drama where, you know, focusing on the negative rather than mm-hmm. the positive. But I, I really enjoyed Moon Over Broadway because it, it it's such inside baseball. I don't know how anybody who doesn't really know Broadway looks at that type of uh, documentary. And it's interesting because the documentary filmmaker was from outside of the Broadway universe and never returned after that documentary. But he, but, but he, but he had previously done done the company. company, Yeah. Yeah. Um, In Leonard Malton's guide, um, the last line in the review of Moon Over Broadway is a must for theater buffs. And uh, that's certainly true. But, you know, in terms of the drama, uh, when I was at the star ledger every year, the McCarter theater would put on a Christmas carol. And I mean, what every, what are you going to do every year for a new idea for a story? Oh my God, what is going to be this year? Um, And finally, somebody said why don't you come to our um dress rehearsal and um and i thought oh please let something go wrong so that i can you know have some sort of drama and thank god something did and it was very good mccarter theaters in princeton new jersey so as a result i was able to say and suddenly princeton we have a problem so it was really uh, I, i was thrilled when that happened because otherwise what would there be to write about so so yes you do look for drama when you need to do something and i'm sure that that uh was the case that uh the drama was semi-manufactured um well well they can't create the moments but but like for example in they can in, edit. Com- in company well yes they can edit absolutely mm-hmm. they can edit sure. but but if the moments aren't there they can't include them no, and, no. and and so with stretch and company uh i've ha- heard people actually suggest that she did it on purpose yes uh, i've a- heard that too as, a, as an attention getting yes i've heard <laughs> uh, that too you know, ploy. Yes. um but in the west side story i don't think they knew that jose carreras was going to have that much trouble singing the role of tony and and bernstein was going to be was going to lose it during the sessions <laughs> mm-hmm. because uh because carreras was having so much problem and in uh and in moon over 
uh, Broadway, I, I presumably they they didn't know that the winch would break and sure. and uh, sure. et cetera. Sure. So anyway, it's 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 just interesting how uh, how that happens. So Rob Johnston asked uh, where he can see Moon Over Broadway. I couldn't find it on the streaming YouTube. services, but it's on is YouTube. It on, is it's it really? Four, it's no. on in four different twenty minute yes. segments on YouTube. Is how I watched it. Uh, uh, me so too. Pretty pretty easy to find <laughs> on uh-huh. YouTube, but I couldn't find it on the other Broadway uh, on the other streaming services easily. I'm sure it's somewhere. I just couldn't find it. So let's wrap up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you can be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts you will find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as a uh, links to a bunch of things that we've talked about today. So, And that Ron Fassler uh, thing on Joe Allen, we'll put in the show notes as mm-hmm. well, so check that out. So, Peter, do we have an answer for last week's trivia? Very much in the news is a woman whose first name is followed by both her maiden and married name. That first and maiden name are the same two names that a character from a Rogers and Hammerstein musical has. And those two names are, well, Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was indeed in the news and will undoubtedly be again and again. And Marjorie Taylor is the name of the mother in Rogers and Hammerstein's Allegro. Alan Teasley was the first to get it, followed by Juliet Green, who wanted to make sure that make very clear that she's no relation to the Congresswoman. Um, <laughs> Rob Johnson, Paul Witte, Steve Bell, Brigadude, Greg Christensen, Tony Janicki, Joanna Abizi, Mike Meany, Josh Israel, Dean Kurth, Jay Aubrey Jones, Thomas Farrell, Carrie Winslow, and Kathy Jones. This week's question, an original Broadway cast album that was initially released as a vinyl record didn't even put the name of the show on the front cover, but just offered the logo. You had to turn the record jacket around to the back cover to discover the name of the musical. Hmm. And it was. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. We should, we should have asked uh, Ken Ludwig if he knew the answer to the trivia question with the Marjorie Taylor Greene it being such a DC insider that he is. <laughs> That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, are you still in your pajamas? Well, no, only because I don't sleep in pajamas. <laughs> uh, ah, TMI, TMI. Yeah, no, 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 it's nothing like that. Not well, James, around. you asked for it. I mean. That's true, that's true. <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, but uh, on that note, I uh, was watching, another thing I watched this week was the new Blu-ray of The Pajama Game, the, the film version of The Pajama Game. And it, the film looks so wonderful on Blu-ray. I, I, I was so glad to see it because... Um, that film and Damn Yankees for years were uh, not – well, they were always available, I think, on DVD, but I had heard that there were rights issues, so they, they, it, they couldn't be remastered and, and, uh, and, and reissued in that sense. So uh, I guess whatever 
problems there were have been solved and and that's coming out. I'm not sure if Damn Yankees has been announced yet, but I think I think it will be. Um, but anyway, I, it was so much fun to watch Pajama Game. I think overall it's an excellent film adaptation. But one of the things that was so delightful about watching it is that our friend Harvey Evans is in it, mm. um, who's been a guest on our podcast twice. And he uh, Harvey has a, a big huge close-up uh, where he's the only person on screen at one point in the Hernando's hideaway uh, number, even though he was just in the ensemble, but he's the one who says, poopsie. Oopsie. Oopsie. <laughs> uh, but then I also noticed this is so much fun in uh, the seven and a half cents number. Uh, Harvey is, is again in one of the ensemble. And at one point, three men lift Doris day up. Mm-hmm. And I noticed uh, for the first time that Harvey has his hand on her butt. Yes, indeed. And, and then I also yeah. <laughs> I also noticed uh, that I I rewatched Judy Garland's Christmas special, which Harvey is also in in the ensemble as a dancing Santa Claus. And at that point in that show, at one point he uh, they have a dance number, and he uh, they're all in a line, and he is holding judy garland's hand while they're all dancing so i just i think we should have harvey on again and ask him you know what other body parts of <laughs> he has touched in his career by the way uh, what always fascinates me about the movie the pajama game all right mm. and i'm not at all in love babe doesn't complain of her co-workers all you got to do is be polite to him and mm. they got you spending the night with him right uh, in the movie, it's all you got to do, it seems, is work for him, and they got you going berserk for him. Now, right. in small talk, Babe yes. uh, on the stage show says, what do you think they get for ham now? Got so a buck's not worth a damn now. But in the movie, what do you think they charge for fruit now? Got so a buck ain't worth a hoot now. Okay. Right. Sort of gives a whole new meaning to Forbidden Broadway, doesn't it? Anyway, <laughs> but what's interesting to me is that in one, there once was a man, mm. Babe proclaims, that she loves Sid more than a dope fiend loves his dope. You know, they didn't change that. I mean, they felt that was okay. And I find that very, very interesting that, um, that once again, um, sex was something that was verboten and they didn't um, deal with the drug issue. I, I just find that fascinating. Peter, are you sure that lines in the movie? The dope fiend uh, dope. Yeah. I believe it is. You think it isn't? I think it isn't. Okay, um, we'll I, I'm not. I'm not sure, but we can All right, check, we'll check. It in. Next week, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Hmm. All right, Michael. What is our musical moment that we can get out of here today? On our musical moment celebrates Leontine Price, the great opera singer who had her 94th birthday earlier this week on on February 10th. Uh, one of the great opera stars of our day. Uh, She made an incredible Metropolitan Opera debut at the old Metropolitan Opera House in 1961 uh, in Il Trovatore. On the same night that Franco Corelli made his debut, people still talk about (laughs) that performance. Um, The audience apparently went insane. And and you can get a taste of it because about a week later, there was the Met broadcast, radio broadcast of Il Trovatore. And that uh, performance is on CD. The Met issued it on CD, but also they recently uh, rebroadcast it to celebrate Miss Price's 94th birthday. And you can hear the audience response there. Um, she was amazing. She did, I would say, very little musical theater in her career, but there were some notable exceptions. She sang uh, 
what I did for love. Uh, it's it's on YouTube. I think it was for a Beverly Sills farewell gala. But also uh, our musical moment for this week is taken from a 1967 recording that uh, Miss Price made with Andre Previn, which is her f- only uh, uh pop recording uh, or, or yeah, recording of uh, American standards and, and, and show tunes other than opera. And uh, to me, uh, one of the most beautiful cuts on it, if not the, the greatest of all is right as the rain from the uh, Harold Arlen, E.Y. Harburg musical bloomer girl. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful song from a show that's not done very often anymore i I wonder if that could be fodder for a revival uh it might have to be tweaked but it it could be really amazing for a revival because it's got feminist themes as well as you know civil rights it deals with slavery and 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 uh that whole situation uh so uh i there's been much discussion of, of opera singers some some of them are very good at singing pop music and some are not. I, I would say on the basis of this recording, as you will hear, that Miss Price really did a beautiful job with it. Also on that album are such other songs as Sunrise, Sunset and Falling in Love Again. Uh, you can uh, it's still very much available. You can pick it up uh, if you if you like to. But but I, I hope you enjoy this track from it because I think it's just beautiful. Okay, so with that, we'll wrap it up for this morning. On behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Whatever game.